welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, we are continuing on in this series that we've been in over the uh, past few weeks, uh, where we are challenging one another to choose joy, which as, as, as far as challenges go, it's a pretty inviting challenge, not like, like the ghost pepper challenge or anything like that. It's a uh, uh, because, you know, joy in general is something that we long for. It's an attractive concept. It's one that even if, like, you don't even have to be going to church to understand it, to think about it, to long for it. And yet, joy is something that is woefully lacking in our society. And truth be told, it's lacking out of much of our lives. Because you see, it turns out that joy isn't just something that you can kind of decide to flip a switch and say, I'm going to be joyful today. Uh, It requires certain conditions to be true in our soul in order for it to take hold, in order for it to thrive. And so in recognition of that, over the course of this series, we've been that we've been talking about choosing joy, we've recognized that in order to be able to choose joy. Uh, we must actually choose, practice uh, postures, uh, attitudes from which joy can spring, can, you know, kind of tend the, the soil of our soul, if you will, to make it viable for joy to, to come out, you know, on the one hand. Of course, on the other hand, we also have to avoid or uh, reject those postures and attitudes that are incompatible with joy, that make joy impossible. And so over the last few weeks, we've, uh, you know, we've talked about noticing versus hurrying. Last week, uh, Mike talked to us about uh, grieving uh, instead of scoffing. And today we are talking about choosing, thanking over complaining. And our passage this morning is in James chapter 1, uh, verse 2. Uh, So if you would turn there with me in your Bibles, and then if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll read verse 2 and then jump down to verse 13. James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So Father, we ask that uh, you would give us the eyes to see your goodness. And that we would recognize it is coming from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So uh, last time I spoke a few weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, it was Carolyn and my 30th wedding anniversary. And I, and I know what you're thinking. Uh, you're thinking, how much sermon mileage is this guy going to try to get out of one anniversary? I mean, let it go already. But bear with me because it totally relates. Because you see, as part of our celebration, uh, we had booked a week uh, at the same hotel that uh, we had honeymooned in 30 years ago. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, when Manuel apparently was starting his ministry life here at Oak Hills, we were getting married. And we had booked this trip like nine months ago, and we had been looking forward to it. Uh, and you know it, what it's like when you look forward to something uh, for a while, you start pinning your hopes on it, right? It, you dream of it. Uh, it. It starts, becomes the thing that you think about to get you through the hard times. Uh, you, you have fun about thinking through the details of what you're going to do and where you're going to go and how it's going to be like, which of course, we were doing all of that. It was a blast to be thinking and looking ahead. This wonderful trip. So imagine our disappointment when a week before we were supposed to leave, like literally the moment I got home from church after preaching this sermon on contentment and life being beautiful and all that garbage, like I get home <laughs> from church from preaching that sermon and we get a phone call informing us that our reservations for this trip, 30th anniversary, because I mentioned it was our 30th, uh, it, the, got a phone call, reservations have been canceled. You see, the hotel that we'd reserved was in Maui, and it was just a few miles away from the town of Lahaina, where a few weeks earlier, a fire had completely wiped out the town. And now our beloved honeymoon hotel was booked solid with Families from Lahaina who had lost their homes, lost everything. There was no option now for us to go where we had originally planned to go. The trip that we had been dreaming about for the previous nine, that we had like dog paddling to this trip for the previous nine months was no longer possible. So you can imagine our disappointment as we were coming to grips with the fact that now the only, op the only option left to us was to switch our trip to another one of the Hawaiian islands. It's a situation commonly referred to as a first world problem. <laughs> now, for those of you unfamiliar with the term, uh, first world problems are problems that are problematic only because of the multitude of benefits and advantages and privileges that must be present prior to the problem becoming a problem. Like, in order for us to suffer the horrendous inconvenient problem of having to move our 30th anniversary trip to another Hawaiian island, well, of course, first of all, we would have to be in the position to have the amazing privilege of being able to make a trip like that at all, right? Uh, we would have to have the amazing gift of my parents being willing to come and watch our kids uh, for a week. We would have to have jobs that allowed us to leave for that time uh, and be able to go. We would have to be, we have to be able to help be healthy enough to enjoy the travel. Uh, not to mention, really, like the amazing gift of a 
30-year marriage to celebrate in the first place. And all of this on top of the simple fact, well, the simple fact that the Hawaiian islands even exist with all their beauty and mystique and clear blue waters and gorgeous sunsets, stunning wildlife. Really, we could go on and on and on and on and on and on, listing all of the good things that had to happen to us, that had to happen to the planet, even over the course of thousands and thousands of years, all so that my wife and I could suffer the inconvenience, the disappointment, the problem of having to switch our trip from one beautiful island to another. This is where we all go, oh. First world problems are an interesting case study when it comes to joy. Because in an exaggerated way, they offer us this choice that really we face all the time in life. That's the choice between thinking and complaining. Which really isn't even a choice, right? I mean, who would ever think that a life of complaining is really the way to go? Like, very rarely would we consciously, you know, weigh the options and, and in the end say to ourselves, yep, I, you know, I could be thankful right now, but no, 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 I think I'm going to complain instead. That feels like the right way to go here. And yet we still do complain. Because sometimes in life it feels like we get backed into a corner and we have no other choice. You see, expectations are a normal, reasonable part of life in society. It's actually how we learn to function, right? For example, those of us that have been coming to Oak Hills for, oh, let's say the last 20 years, uh, we have come to expect that when we walk in the door, there will be coffee ready and waiting for us at the coffee bar. Now, it's not necessarily because we believe we deserve coffee. We would feel dishonored, offended if we were not offered coffee. It's just that for the last 20 years or so, every Sunday, there's been coffee out there. It's a miracle how it appears. People praying in the morning and it's just every week. For those of us that enjoy coffee as a part of our morning routine, well, we don't make coffee at home because we have become accustomed to it being available here. When we get here. So, if we show up on a Sunday morning and there is no coffee, we will naturally feel disappointed. The thing we expected to be here to happen, it didn't happen. What am I to do when I feel disappointed? Pretend not to be? And because we live in an unpredictable world where there's close to 7 billion individuals running around all making individual choices that affect other people. We are disappointed a lot. I mean, if I gave you, if I stopped talking for 20 seconds and I gave you the assignment in the next 20 seconds, make a list of 20 things, 20 ways that you've been disappointed since the time you woke up this morning, you guys would have no problem no problem coming up with 20 ways to be disappointed in 20 seconds or less. So, of course, nobody would ever want to choose complaining. 
But in the face of so many disappointments, it seems the inevitable response. How else are we going to stand up for ourselves? How else are we going to advocate for our rights as a consumer, as a voting, taxpaying citizens? How else are we going to stand up for our rights as human beings? But of course, there is a difference between being disappointed and complaining. Where disappointment is unavoidable, complaining takes the unavoidable disappointment and then makes it somebody's fault. It ascribes it to some nefarious conspiracy concocted by somebody specifically against us. Why do these things always happen to me? Why is everybody out to get me? Now, sometimes it's the person closest to us that we decide is at fault. This works really well for the tangible disappointments of, you know, the trash can being overflowing or not getting what we were hoping to get for dinner or the line at the grocery store not go taking longer than expected. But for bigger things, you know, we realize... No one person really could be at fault for causing this inconvenience. And, and so we move our complaint to bigger unseen forces of people. You know, college admissions committee that are being too demanding or illegal aliens that are taking our jobs or deep state agencies that are, you know, orchestrating pain, misery, and suffering at a global scale. You know, those people out there. But if we stay at it, Eventually, eventually our logic kicks in and we realize that really no human being or group of human beings has the power to be able to orchestrate all the events that would have been necessary to cause the inconvenience or the suffer or suffering or the trial that we are experiencing. Nope. No, eventually our complaining begins to target the only one powerful enough to be able to weave all those factors together and aim them directly at me. Eventually, after demanding to see the manager's 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 manager, eventually, after demanding to speak to the one in charge, sooner or later, whether we say it out loud or not, our complaining gets directed to God. How could God do this to me? And of course, if you follow this progression, it is very easy to see how complaining is completely incompatible with joy. If joy is, as Mike has been describing it, a pervasive sense of well-being, well, it would be impossible to sustain that sense of well-being if we feel that the world and its creator are all out to get us. And when we complain, we are reinforcing that perspective. We're reinforcing that belief in ourselves. We are reinforcing the belief that people and nature and even God is out there purposefully messing with what would otherwise be a beautiful existence for us. And the tricky thing about complaining, though, is that it, it always seems so logical. It always seems so justifiable. I mean, when you consider it, the evidence, right, the evidence really is overwhelming. 
everywhere we look, we can find something to complain about. I mean, obviously, whoever is in charge here isn't doing a very good job. Which is why James' statement at the beginning of this passage, it seems so naive. Really, it seems dishonest, almost. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. I mean, why? How? That sounds like the most fakest religious garbage statement in the world. Joy in trials? I mean, aren't trials by definition unpleasant things that disrupt our sense of well-being? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Trials are not, by definition, things that get in the way of our sense of well-being. Trials are disruptions to our expectations of how things are supposed to go. But they don't have to result in complaining. We have other options. And the first is to understand that God does not do things just to mess with us, to try to trip us up. James says this in verse 13. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God, you see, is not trying to make you complain. He's not out there trying to get you mad, trying to mess with your day just to see if you'll break. He's not out there orchestrating bad events to test you. God does not do evil. Period. God did not create a hurricane in the South Pacific in order to send hot, dry winds to Hawaii to start a fire in a town three miles away from where I was planning a vacation that killed hundreds of people, displaced thousands, all just to mess with my plans and see if I would complain or not, or see if I would count it all joy. I mean, that would be really mean. And God is not mean. Now, how do I know God is not mean? Well, for one, because he made Hawaii. He made sea turtles. He made pineapples and grilled mahi-mahi. He made palm trees and waves and sunsets and sunrises. He made smiles and relationships and marriage and love. The reason I know God is good is because of all the reasons that I was disappointed for not getting to go to the place that I had planned on going. You see, when you think about it, the reasons we are disappointed when bad things happen, when we find ourselves in various trials, the reason we are tempted to complain in those situations is that we are so accustomed to how good life is. We are used to being taken care of. We are used to being provided for. We are used to nature being beautiful. We are used to each breath <sighs> feeling so good. Our overwhelming experience of life is good. 
And I don't mean, I don't mean first world good, like, uh, because we have like technology and reliable internet. I mean humanity across the board, across the centuries, around the world. The human experience is good. God's actions in creation and throughout history, they've trained us to expect good things to happen. That is why we're so appalled when we see it disrupted. This is why Jesus, when he was talking to people about how unreasonable it was for them to worry, how illogical it was, Jesus could just point to nature, to people's common experience of the goodness of wildflowers and and sparrows, and say, look, God is good all the time. And all the time, there was one moment there that this could have really worked out well, so we're going to have to do it all over again, okay? (laughs) He could say, look, God is good all the time. And all the time, that's a little more convincing. James says it this way, every, every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And it is this truth, this fact, that makes being thankful in the face of disappointment and trials a reasonable response. You see, being thankful is not dishonest or naive or ignorant of facts. Really, it's complaining that requires ignorance of facts. In order to complain, we have to look past all the good things to pick out the exception to the rule and then focus all of our energy on that one exception. I love that James, in this passage, he prefaces his statement with the warning, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Like even back then, there was this temptation to write off the good things in life as, you know, Coincidences or, you know, unimportant. Like, what's really good are the things that cost a lot of money. And the things that are given, the things that are free, eh. As if what was really important about going to Hawaii was what hotel you were sitting in as you enjoyed the sunset, rather than the sunset itself. Do not be deceived. All of the good things you're accustomed to, from the crispness of a new morning to the smell of coffee, to the sense of satisfaction that you get from being productive, to the warm feeling you have from helping someone throughout your day, to the satisfaction of a good meal at the end of a long day, to the sweet pleasure of a good night's sleep, and all the other million goodnesses between them. 
All of that, all of that comes from God. Not random chance. Not because we deserved it. Not because we somehow did something to cater some favor from him. They are not simply the crumbs that fall off of God's table. But the goodness that we have come to expect was all on purpose from God to us. So what do you say? Well, you say thank you, right? The instruction to Christ followers to be thankful is everywhere in the New Testament. Thankfulness was to be the characteristic of the culture of faith. Paul uh, says in 1 Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances. And this instruction is not to say, be thankful for all circumstances. That's a different thing. It doesn't say, give thanks for the fire that destroyed a town and disrupted your vacation plans. Because, of course, that would assume that all circumstances are caused by God, which is just simply untrue. But what this instruction does say is that in every circumstances, there are things to be thankful to God for. And when we practice thanking, we train our eyes to see the good from God that saturates every situation, even the disappointing ones. Rather than giving all of our attention to the enemy of God's goodness. Which, there is an enemy. A force that is in opposition to the goodness that God desires for humanity. That's why our experience of goodness is scarred. It is interrupted at times. Our view of God's pervasive goodness does get clouded by the occasional distortions of it by God's enemies. Which again is why our practice of thankfulness is so important. When we practice gratitude to God in every circumstance, we are training our eyes to focus on God's work. To let the goodness of God's work be the foundation for every other experience in life. And very important here, don't misunderstand me. The exercise here is not to ignore. It's not to ignore the bad things. To pretend they're not there. Or to somehow, you know, spin the, 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 the bad things into being good somehow. Like, you know, like there's some sort of blessing in disguise. The fire in Lahaina was not a blessing in disguise. A lot of people lost everything. A lot of people died. I'm not saying that we should ignore the bad. The exercise I am suggesting is to put the bad things in context. And that context is a world that was created by a good God who is always working to share that goodness with us. A goodness that is so pervasive and so powerful that even the toughest tragedies are permeated with it. Bad things aren't 
blessings in disguise. They can just feel like that sometimes. Because God's goodness always floats to the top in every situation. And this is something we just have to practice intentionally. And we might have to go overboard on it to kind of train ourselves. Like we might have to risk being considered inauthentic or Pollyannish. We might have to err on the side of finding things uh, to be thankful where there wasn't anything to be thankful for. That's a good assignment. Go out there and find something to be thankful for where there isn't anything to be thankful for. But with practice, we begin to gain focus not on the disappointing exceptions, but on how pervasive and active and strong God's goodness is. Not just in our lives, not just in our first world suburban comfort, but everywhere. Even in the midst of hard times, the midst of disappointments. Even in the times when evil seems so prevalent and pervasive, we'll be able to see God's goodness bleeding through the way the sun burns through the early morning fog. And when we learn to see the world that way, well, joy, I mean, joy becomes instinctive. When we realize that the goodness that is so pervasive in our life, that is the goodness that is available to everyone everywhere, when that, when that becomes the forefront of our attention, joy becomes unrestrainable. Like we wouldn't be able to suppress this pervasive sense of well-being. We'd have to like, we'd have to fake joylessness. Imagine that. Like imagine having to go through the, just to like not be rude. I gotta pretend not to be joyful because, you know, kind of messes with the culture a bit. When we get good at thanking God, even in our trials, I mean, we would be joyful, convinced that even there, God's good gifts are going to shine through. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And so, Father, we confess our tendency to pick out the exceptions that we, the things that we consider exceptions to your goodness and harp and focus on that. And God, we just, we release that to you. We recognize that that's just part of our desire to control, that is part of our desire to pretend to be in charge of the world and and we just let that go to you and we ask Holy Spirit that you would focus the eyes of our hearts on what is actually the pervasive reality that we experience we experience it so much that we uh, we take it for granted your surpassing goodness in every area of the world and every area of our life. 
So let that be the focus of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close in worship?